Lord, you're big and you love us, and that makes us glad. Now let the words that I say and let the thoughts we all think be pleasing in your sight. For Jesus' sake, amen. We're just a couple of weeks away from Advent, which is the time of year when the world starts to get a little bit irritated by Christians who think that we are getting persecuted all the time, right? Starbucks changes the color of its cups. Persecution. Our local bookstore is selling Hanukkah stuff instead of Christmas stuff. Persecution. Right? So um, a snarky blogger created this chart. It's going to be hard to see, but I'll walk you through it uh, to figure out how to know whether we're being persecuted or not. Uh, the first question is, did someone threaten your life, safety, civil liberties, or right to worship? If the answer is yes, you're being persecuted. If the answer is no, then you can proceed to the next question, which is, did someone wish you happy holidays? And no matter what the answer to that question is, the answer is you're not being persecuted. But in seriousness, you know, times are changing. You know, things that 20 years ago we didn't have to deal with as Christians, we do now have to deal with. And we could talk about um, policies that are more hostile to Christianity. We could talk about um, verbal attacks that some of us have experienced because of our faith. Um, and, you know, none of that should be taken lightly. Jesus himself said that when we're hated, excluded, reviled, when people call us evil because of him, that's real suffering, right? But in our text today, um, in Acts, as we pick up the story, the ordinary Christians in Jerusalem are going to face a new level of persecution that goes beyond verbal attacks, um, that goes beyond just the everyday things that you and I experience today. Would you turn there with me in Acts chapter 7? Verse 54 of chapter 7 is where we'll pick up the story. As you're turning there, let me remind you of where we are. Um, We heard last week about a guy named Stephen, who was one of the seven deacons, we might call them, the people who were running this food ministry in the early church so that the apostles could be freed up to focus on the ministry of the word and prayer. Um, And where we pick up the text today, Stephen has been arrested. He's been brought before a council of Jewish leaders who are putting him on trial because they want to put an end to this Christian movement that Stephen is a part of. Um, So Stephen has begun his defense in chapter 7. He begins his defense by telling a story of Israel's history, and he walks through Israel's history, and he highlights along the way times in which their ancestors rejected the prophets and rejected the voice of God along the way. And he's going to finish with the statement that they've done the same thing in this day and age by rejecting Jesus, the Messiah, and now they're rejecting Stephen as well. So we'll pick up the story in verse 54 at the end of Stephen's defense. And as I read through chapter 8, verse 8, I want you to listen and follow along to see how the persecution unfolds after Stephen's death and how the church handles that persecution. Starting with 754. Now when they heard these things, they were enraged, and they ground their teeth at him. That's at Stephen. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God, and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened, and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice, and stopped their ears, and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. 
And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. And Saul approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church, and entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits, crying out with a loud voice, came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. The big idea that we'll see from that text is, when persecuted, proclaim Jesus. So the early church, after Stephen's death, they saw persecution as an opportunity to proclaim Jesus. They used that as an opportunity to proclaim Jesus all the more. Now, I want to anticipate a question that might need to be addressed right at the outset today, and that's, well, why should I care? If I'm living in a time and a place where we're not being persecuted, at least to this degree, why should I care so much uh, about following a passage that deals with persecution and preaching Christ when being persecuted? I think there's at least four reasons why Christians need to think about persecution, even during a time when we're not actively being persecuted to this degree. Just briefly before we jump into the text, one reason, all of us will face persecution of some sort. I'm thinking of 2 Timothy chapter 3, which we preached back in the spring, where we saw all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. In other words, The way of Jesus Christ is so at odds with every worldview and philosophical system and political system of this world that if we're seeking to live our lives under the lordship of Christ, then at some point it's going to rub up against the world in such a way that we're going to be opposed strongly. A second reason, we never know when greater persecution is going to come. Right now we might not be getting thrown in jail for our faith, but Who knows with as volatile as things are in our world right now, we could be one election cycle away from that being the case. Third, even if that doesn't end up being the case in our lifetimes, it may be for the next generation, and we have to prepare the next generation for persecution that they might face, right? Well, one generation assumes, the next generation loses. And so if we fail to prepare the next generation to face persecution, they might falter in the face of it. And finally... When one part suffers, we all suffer. We heard earlier in that video that one out of 12 Christians in the world right now are facing serious persecution for their faith. And it's not just something nice to do to talk about it. It's our duty, actually, as Christians to suffer along with them, to enter into that with them and understand what they're experiencing. So all that to say, even if the worst persecution you face this week is getting made fun of for your sexual ethics being modeled after the way of Jesus Christ, this text is God's word for us in this room, every single one of us. So there's three sections in this text, um, and those three sections each ask a question of us, and so we'll take those three questions in turn as we go. First section 
is 754-81, and it's based on uh, the experience that Stephen has at his death, and he is willing to die proclaiming Jesus. And so the question for us is this, are you willing to die proclaiming Jesus? I'm going to reread those verses, actually, one more time, 754-81. to 81. And as I read, and as you follow along, ask yourself that question. Are you willing to die proclaiming Jesus? And when they heard these things, they were enraged, and they ground their teeth at him. But he, Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God, and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened, and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. And Saul approved of his execution. So Stephen died proclaiming Jesus on one hand because of the content of what he was saying when he died, right? He died, the words that were coming out of his mouth were talking about Jesus, the risen and ascended Jesus. But also, Stephen died proclaiming Jesus in the shape of his words, didn't he? And what I mean by that is Stephen died talking like Jesus, right? We know that Jesus was someone who spoke as though the Holy Spirit was filling him at all times. And in verse 55 of chapter 7, we see that Stephen was the same, full of the Holy Spirit. Stephen's final words are mirrored after the final words of Jesus. Take a look at a comparison here from Luke 23 when Jesus says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And Stephen, in some of his last words, he says, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Also, Jesus on the cross said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And Stephen, as he's being stoned, says, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. So it's not only in the content of what Stephen says that talks about Jesus, it's also in the shape of his final words that he talks like Jesus talked till the end. I don't know about you, but that's convicting for me as I think about how quick I am to abandon both talking about Jesus, and talking like Jesus, right? All it takes is for me to sense that the person I'm talking to is not really down with the whole Jesus thing, and I'll pull back with my speaking about Jesus. And all it takes is somebody to irritate me or cut me off in traffic, and that's right away I'm not talking like Jesus anymore. I abandon that part of it, right? But imagine if we were so consumed day in and day out with a desire to talk about Jesus and talk like Jesus, to proclaim Jesus in both the content of our words and the shape of our words. And imagine if we were consumed with the desire to do that even to the day of our death. Do you ever think about that? What you're going to be doing at the end before you die? Have you made plans for how you're going to die? I don't think it's ever too early to do so to think about how we want to die and how we want to spend our last moments and days, if we don't give it thought, what's likely to happen is a nurse come into our hotel, or I mean our hospital room, and turn on a TV. And we expire to mindless entertainment in the background as we go, right? But imagine if we thought ahead of time about how we wanted to spend those last moments, those last days, 
proclaiming Jesus, both through the content of what we were saying to anyone who would listen and in the shape of what we were saying to anyone that we could speak to. But living like that, living like Jesus up to our dying breaths, that has a way of uniting people who were previously opposed to one another against us, right? We saw it in the life of Jesus, um, who had Pharisees and Sadducees who didn't like each other unite to kill him. Herod and Pilate, who didn't like each other, united to kill Jesus, right? Religious people and non-religious people came together to kill Jesus. We see it here in Stephen's death. This council was made up of people who had serious theological disagreements with one another. But in verse 57, you saw your footnote there. They rushed together at him. Another way of saying that would be they rushed with one mind at him, literally, is what it says. These people who were previously opposed to each other can come together with one mind in agreement that they want to extinguish Stephen and stop what he's saying. We can expect the same if we're going to talk like Jesus and talk about Jesus, that people who are previously opposed to each other will be united against us. But as, as Stephen takes their single-minded anger and absorbs it, he sees a picture, doesn't he, of a greater reality. In verses 55 and 56, he sees the curtain pulled back, so to speak, and he sees a scene... It's pretty astounding. Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And as Stephen is facing trial in a man-made temple, he sees a picture of the heavenly throne room. Jesus standing at the right hand of God, pointing to a direct access that we now have to the Father through Jesus Christ himself. While Stephen is standing in a place that was offering for so many years indirect access to God through rituals and sacrifices and mediators, right? It's a vision that validates the words that he's saying about this Jesus who has opened up a direct access to our Father in heaven. For Stephen, that vision was worth dying for. I guess the question for us this morning is, is that worth dying for to you? And of course, on Sunday morning, we know the right answer is yes. That's what we're supposed to say, right? But our real answer to that question gets answered on 10 a.m. on Monday morning, right, and at 10 p.m. on Friday night with how we live our lives. It shows whether this picture, this vision of the risen and ascended Jesus is worth dying for for us. Are you willing to die proclaiming Jesus? Second section of our text is about the scattered, so to speak, in verses 1 through 4 of chapter 8, the people who got pushed out of Jerusalem to the surrounding areas. And they're proclaiming Jesus on the run. And so as I reread verses 1 through 4 of chapter 8, let's ask ourselves a question. Are we willing to proclaim Jesus on the run? There arose on that day, that's the day of Stephen's death, a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church, and entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. These scattered are on the run. They're on the run primarily because of this guy named Saul. Saul was holding the coats at Stephen's death, and then a couple verses later, it seems like he's taken the lead in the opposition movement against the early church. But we know 
that this is just the prelude to Paul's, Saul's story, isn't it? That in the chapters to come, he's going to become a Christian himself. He's going to become known as Paul. He's going to become one of the greatest missionaries the church has ever known. And that's worth thinking about, I think, as we consider the people in our own lives who give us the most grief for being Christians, right? That person who's always given you such a hard time for being a Christian at work. That person who's always seems like they're probably talking about you on Facebook without mentioning your name, right? And kind of ragging on you for being a Christian. That person could be the next Saul, Paul, right? You don't know. We don't know who God's going to use and who God's going to draw to himself. So that should at least give us pause before we treat them as enemies and treat them with hostility. In the meantime, though, it hurts, doesn't it? When we are being mistreated and when our brothers and sisters in the faith are being mistreated. We see that Stephen was killed and the church lamented over him. And there's a place for that. Not every Christian funeral needs to be bright colors and joyful singing exclusively, right? There's a place to lament in the church, and it is sad. Death is not part of the way it was meant to be originally, and we can grieve that. But even in the midst of their grief, the church was being propelled up and out, as one commentator put it. Being propelled up because some of them are being taken up into heaven to join their Savior, Jesus. They're being propelled out because they're being pushed out of Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria, which, as you remember back in chapter 1, was the whole thing that they were supposed to do anyway. That's what the book of Acts is going to be the story of, is this message going from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth. This is the very first time that it actually goes out of Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria. And how does it happen? It doesn't happen because of a strategic five-year plan to reach Judea and Samaria. It doesn't happen because of the apostles passed down a mandate that each one reach one this year. It happened because of two things paired together. Persecution plus a bunch of Christians who were devoted to gossiping the gospel wherever they went. And I use that term gossiping the gospel. It's one of the favorite phrases of one of the professors over at Trinity. But I think it's an apt one because, I mean, we know how gossip works, right? You don't have to be taught how to gossip. You just do it when you are so excited to tell about something that just feels so juicy and so it's just bursting out of you and you end up spilling the beans, right? And that's what these early Christians were doing is they're gossiping the gospel. It's just bursting out of them, spilling out of them wherever they go, right? You saw it in verse 4. What did they do? They, when they're scattered, they went about preaching the word. What could they have been doing instead? Well, they could have been worrying, Right? Man, we got kicked out of Jerusalem. What if Saul comes here next to round up Christians here in Judea and Samaria? I hope our friends back home are okay. They could have spent their time grieving. Oh, I really miss the old neighborhood. I don't like living here with our cousins in Judea as much. But instead of spending their time doing those things, they spend their time preaching the word in verse 4. And somebody right now is like, well, I'm not a preacher. I'm not gifted to do that. But don't be led astray by that word. This doesn't mean that they're all getting up in front of large crowds and delivering sermons, right? It's just they're proclaiming the gospel. They're gossiping the gospel wherever they go. And if you know how to gossip, then you know how to do exactly what these people were doing. As they're scattered, just spilling the beans about Jesus everywhere they go. As I think about the difference 
between what's going on here in Acts 8 and our experience here on the North Shore, I think maybe the biggest difference is the difference of mindset. And it was a conversation with one of our elders this week that kind of helped me clarify it because he used an analogy, and I'll frame it in the terms of a question. The question would be this. Is North Suburban Church a citadel of safety on the North Shore, or are we a missionary outpost on the North Shore? Right? Are we a citadel of safety, or are we a missionary outpost on the North Shore? For years, some within this church have viewed our church as a citadel of safety. In other words, it's a hostile world out there that's trying to corrupt us and influence us negatively. And this castle here on the corner of Lake Cook and Waukegan is where we can come to protect ourselves and shield ourselves from that and make sure we preserve the truth in here from all those harmful influences from the outside that would seek to tear it down. Sure, we do missions, but our missions are, let's put together a really good program inside the doors of the castle and then print out nice flyers and slip them under people's doors and ring the doorbell and leave and hope they come in the castle on the night of our big production, right? That's overstating, exaggerating, but that's the heart behind it in some ways. The alternative would be to view ourselves as a missionary outpost here on the North Shore. In other words, this is a place of darkness here on the North Shore, and God set up an outpost here on the corner of Lake Cook and Waukegan that would be a light that would penetrate the darkness in the neighborhoods where we live and the towns where we work, right? That we would be viewing things the way Jesus talked about when he said the gates of hell would not stand against the church. Gates are a defensive measure. In other words, Hell is going to be on the defensive against us, and we're going to be breaking down the gates of hell to snatch people out and bring them into the light. Imagine if we viewed ourselves that way, and I wonder if that mindset difference is part of the difference between why we experience something different from what's happening here in Acts chapter 8. After church today, there's an NCD meeting, town hall meeting in which we're going to uh, review the results of our latest natural church development survey. And what we're going to hear there is that our main area for growth that we need to grow in in the future as a church is evangelism. And so we'd like to invite you to stay after today and dream with us about how we could become a church increasingly that views ourselves not as a citadel that's protecting ourselves from the outside world, but as a missionary outpost here on the North Shore? How can we do that better? But as our text reminds us, the how questions about how we're going to do it, those aren't the first questions that need to be asked. The first question that needs to be asked is, will we do it? Right? That question that I raised here with the second point, are you willing to proclaim Jesus on the run? Some people get sick of me saying it around here, but so often the answer to how is yes. Right? And we use those how questions to put off doing what we want to have excuses not to do because, well, we don't know how to do it. But the first and foremost question is, are we going to do it? That was big for me as I moved into full-time ministry here a year and a half ago. I had always been in situations and jobs in which I was around unbelievers day in and day out. And I knew that if I, didn't, if I wasn't intentional about it, being in this new job, I wouldn't necessarily even be regularly in the lives of any unbelievers on a regular basis. So 
I had to make it an intent right off the bat a year and a half ago. And again, this year when we had a kid and everything got hard again to try to figure out that it's not an option for me not to be in the lives of unbelievers. So Sarah and I carve out two nights of our week every week that we're doing that. And it's hard, and it becomes harder and harder the more things get added into life. But it's not an option any other way. And... um, it's just the question of are we willing to do it? Are we willing to proclaim Jesus on the run? The final section of our text deals with this guy named Philip, who actually is one of the scattered that was talked about in the last four verses. And what we see in his life is that he's willing to let Jesus display his power through him. And so that's the question for us. As I reread verses 5 through 8, ask yourself that final question. Are you willing to let Jesus display his power through you? Chapter 8, verse 5 says, Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds, with one accord, paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits, crying out with a loud voice, came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. So Philip's one of the scattered. He gets scattered to this place, Samaria, that was a place that a lot of Jewish people like himself had animosity towards. And as he's preaching the word there, there are signs that accompany his message, these wonderful things that are happening that validate what he's saying. And on one level, very simply, the signs just get people to pay attention to his message, right? But on another level, we need to think carefully about it and notice that these aren't just random signs that Philip's doing in conjunction with his message. They're actually very closely tied to the content of what he's saying. Philip's preaching a message that there's good news in Jesus that one day the broken will be healed, the sick will be made well, the dead will be raised, right? And as he's preaching those words, people are getting to see just a mini enactment of it right in front of their faces in person, right? It's like a preview of coming attractions. Philip's saying, this is what's going to be, and let me show you a little taste of what it's going to be like just right now. And so in verse 6, we see that people are paying close attention to his words as a result. Now, somebody would say, well, I can't do signs like that. That's nice for Philip, but I can't do that. And my question would be, how do you know? We met Philip two chapters ago, back in chapter 6, when he, with Stephen, was one of the deacons that was chosen. There was no mention of his ability to do miraculous signs. But God can use anybody he wants to use as a conduit of his power. Right? And we see him doing just that through Philip here. When we're given the Holy Spirit, which we all receive when we receive Jesus, we are given power. The Holy Spirit is powerful. And that's why the third movement of our mission statement at this church isn't that we want to send out sophisticated Christians to transform the world. It's not that we want to send out educated Christians to transform the world. It's we want to send out what? empowered Christians to transform the world, right? That's, that's what transforms the world, is people, ordinary people, the people that the world wouldn't expect, that the world would overlook, but who are given the power of the Holy Spirit to go transform the world. And in our ordinary weeks, most of us don't see anything miraculous happen. At least it doesn't seem so. But I wonder if we think through what we're seeing here, if there are some somewhat less miraculous ways in which God is doing the same thing through each of us. Here's what I mean. Aren't we preaching about a God who can break the chains of addiction 
And hasn't he given some of us stories of doing just that, breaking the chains of addiction in our lives that we can show to the people who we are proclaiming the message to? Aren't we preaching about a God who's able to bring joy in the midst of great sorrow? And hasn't he given some of us stories of experiencing joy that's unexpected, even in the midst of going through some great sorrow, right? Maybe in a million ways each week, God is weaving together our stories so that we will have pictures to show the world, miniature enactments of the world that exists in Christ that we're trying to tell people about and draw people to. Because Philip's faithful to do that, the passage concludes in verse 8 that there is much joy in that city. There's one Christian in the city preaching and doing these signs, and the whole city becomes joyful as a result. I wonder if that's true about us. In Deerfield and Northbrook and Highland Park and Glenview and Buffalo Grove, I wonder if it could be said about us there's joy in that whole city because of our presence there. If the news we're sharing is truly good news, and if it's good news not just for the life to come, but for this life as we believe that it is, then shouldn't there be joy in the city as we come? And you say, well, people reject my message when I bring it. Sure, people rejected it then too. But wherever God's word is preached, some people reject it and some people receive it with joy. And I wonder how much we are shying away from sharing it with those who would be joyful to receive it because we're scared of the alternative of people rejecting it. We don't know who's going to receive and who's going to reject, right? All we can do is be faithful, let Jesus display his power through us. Are we willing to do that? Well, by the end of our text, the message has left Jerusalem. It's gone out to Judea and Samaria, just as Jesus said it would in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. And the way it's happened is through persecution of all things. It makes us ask the question, what if God's pulling the strings all along? What if God is working behind the scenes to orchestrate things to his purposes, even through something as bad as persecution for his own purposes? If we're thinking about the world that way, and if we're thinking about those little slights and attacks that we receive that way, maybe it would be easier to live out this big idea. When persecuted, proclaim Jesus. When persecuted, proclaim Jesus. You know, severe persecution isn't our reality right now. It could be one day, or it could be for the next generation, and we want to prepare them for that. But what if in the meantime, we weren't spending so much of our time and energy fighting against possible persecution to come, What if we were seeing it as an opportunity, an opportunity to proclaim Jesus in new ways and to new people? Maybe if we started seeing persecution as an opportunity and we started gossiping the gospel right now, even before facing persecution wherever we went, then we'd be ready when that persecution comes. And when they do start to really bring persecution against us, Maybe then all they'll succeed in doing is filling prison cells with people who can't shut up about this Jesus. Maybe all they'll succeed in doing is launching a growth, a massive growth of Christianity here on the North Shore and beyond. Let me pray. Lord, we thank you for the privilege of getting to proclaim your word in relative safety right now with relative freedom, great deal of freedom. Lord, we don't take for granted that that'll always be the case. But Lord, we don't pray that you keep that persecution from us at all costs either. Lord, 
We ask that you do what you would do in your own purposes to orchestrate the movement of your word, your gospel, to the nations, and that you'd use us to do it. Give us the boldness to do it, and help us just be so in love with your gospel that it can't help but burst out of us, that we can't help but spill the beans about you, that we can't help but gossip your gospel to the people that we come in contact with. Lord, make us those sorts of people. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and sing.